mugs or paste on our walls. It's a difficult passage of scripture. And it deals with a very difficult picture. Some here in this room today know the pain of infidelity all too well. And I know that you probably prefer not to think back to that. But God's word puts it in front of us. Whether you're married or single, whether you're a teenager or retirement age, most of us can at least imagine the pain of one of the deepest kinds of rejection that we can experience in this life. You met somebody you loved. You got engaged. You made a covenant of holy matrimony. You stood on a stage like this one and you joined your hands with your beloved. And you said, in essence, I will be yours and you will be mine. You committed. You covenanted together. But then a few years later, you're lying alone in your bed at night. And your beloved has decided to be with someone else instead. Understandably, you will feel betrayed and lied to, deceived. This kind of rejection cuts very, very deep. Because you understand that at least for a moment, your beloved has chosen someone else instead of you. Even a little bit of infidelity is a very serious offense. And in the case of Hosea and his wife Gomer, that was only part of the story. Last week we saw the shocking setting of the book of Hosea, chapter 1, verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take your take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Go marry a wife who will turn away from you and turn toward prostitution. What? Obviously, this is shocking language meant to get our attention. And then we read Hosea chapter 2. And at first, this chapter sounds like it is Hosea's heartfelt plea for his wife to return. Plead with your mother, plead for she is not my wife. But then as we read along, something dawns on us. We realize what we are reading. This is not mainly about Hosea and Gomer. This is mainly about the Lord and his people. Verse 13 says, And I will punish her, the land, for the feast days of Baal. That's a particular kind of idol. When she burned offerings to them. And went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. You see, the main point of this story is not simply to show us Hosea's grief that his wife has turned away from him. The greater point of Hosea chapter 2 is to show us the Lord's heart as his people 
have turned away from Him and given themselves to a kind of spiritual prostitution. You see, Hosea is using this very unflattering image of God's people as prostitutes. He's using this very unflattering imagery to show us that we are like a wife leaving our husband and turning into prostitution when we turn away from the Lord and trust in other idols. And yet the message, the goal, the aim of Hosea chapter 2 is not only to show us, is not only to show us the gravity and the severity and the weight and the seriousness of our sin. It's not only here to show us that. Perhaps more importantly, the aim of Hosea chapter 2 is this. God aims to win our hearts back. To win our hearts away from whoring idolatry. To be wholly His. In a couple of minutes, we'll look at Hosea 2, a couple of sections at a time. But first, I want to pause and consider a question that is really important for the sake of application. Sometimes we kind of walk through a text and then we slow down and think about something we need to think about for application. I'm going to kind of reverse that order a little bit today. There's something we need to think about in order to understand what God is saying to us through this text today. And the question is this, what is idolatry and why does that matter for us today? You see, most of us tend to say, you know, if I didn't grow up Buddhist worshiping the statues like you might find over on Garfield at the on Garfield Avenue at the Buddhist temple over there. Or if we say if I didn't grow up Hindu, like going to that Hindu temple that is up the way by 88 over here. If I didn't grow up Buddhist, if I didn't grow up Hindu, if I don't usually find myself tugged in the direction of worshiping handmade statues, then does idolatry really have anything to say to me today? And we need to slow down and think about this issue. Otherwise, what this text is saying, we'll just shrug our shoulders at it and walk away, right? To understand what this issue of idolatry is really about, maybe one way we can do that is to think about the first place that idolatry shows up in the Bible. I wonder if you know where that is, Bible quiz experts. The first time that idolatry explicitly shows up in the Bible is in the life of Rachel, the wife of Jacob, the father of the tribes of Israel. And in chapter 31 of Genesis, Rachel and her husband Jacob are leaving Rachel's father's house. And as they leave Rachel's culture of origin... To move toward the promised land as they leave Rachel's family of origin. Do you know what Rachel takes with her? A few of the household idols that belonged to her father Laban. 
She brings some of these household gods with her. And there's this fascinating story in Genesis 31 as Laban comes and confronts Jacob, thinking Jacob is the one who has stolen these little household statues or these little household idols, when the whole time the idols are cleverly hidden in the camel's saddle where Rachel is sitting. It's a fascinating story. We don't know for sure the connection with idolatry, but just a chapter earlier in Genesis chapter 30, we heard, we learned something important about Rachel's heart. We hear something of a passionate, heartfelt, understandably passionate and heartfelt cry of Rachel in Genesis chapter 30 as she says to her husband, give me children or I will die. And many who have paid attention to the story of Rachel in Genesis chapter 30 and 31 have wondered if perhaps there is a connection between this unfulfilled longing for something as good as kids. Are you tracking with me? Is it good to desire children in your marriage? Yes, that's a good thing to desire. It's a good thing to pray for. And yet perhaps there is some connection between this unfulfilled longing in Rachel's life, which goes so deep that Rachel says, give me children or I'd rather be dead. There's perhaps this connection between that and discovering these household idols, which in their culture were often connected with, in people's minds with the power of fertility, the ability to deliver children, the ability to give you that family that you long for. See, from the very first instance of idolatry in Scripture in the life of Rachel, we can see a few themes which continue to echo throughout the scriptures. First of all, idolatry might seem normal or excusable to us because it very often comes undetected from our culture or from our family of origin. Secondly, idolatry can be hidden under the surface, we might say. It might be hidden out of plain sight even among God's people. And third, idolatry is often tied to deeply held hopes and fears, sometimes even deeply held hopes or fears over very good gifts of God. By Hosea's day, why did people put Baal statues out in their fields? Because they wanted divine blessing for their fields. In other words, they wanted food and wine and clothing. Now, track with me, is food or wine or clothing intrinsically wrong? No. Food is blessed by the Lord. Wine was blessed repeatedly by the Lord Jesus Christ. Clothing is a God-given gift, at least on this side of the fall. So don't take that in any weird directions, okay? These are good gifts from God. And yet when we take good things and we make them God things in our lives, lowercase g, God, what we're beginning to embark on is a road toward idolatry. Similarly, in Hosea's day, these Baal gods were not only connected with fruitfulness of the fields or fertility of the land itself, they were also connected with fertility and personal life. And so these little statues, these little Baal stone statues were often connected with sexual fulfillment 
with a growing family? And again, are these bad things intrinsically? No. Sex was designed by God and given as a gift. A family is certainly not a bad thing. But when we take good things and we make them God's, when we take good gifts and we elevate them to a status above God's clear direction and lordship in our lives, even with very good gifts that God offers to us, when we take good things and we make them God's in our lives, we are well on the path toward idolatry. The prophet Ezekiel uses strong language in the Old Testament to warn God's people that idols are not only found when we end up worshiping little stone statues that we can hide under a camel's saddle or we can stick out in our fields. The prophet Ezekiel uses very strong language to warn God's people about what he calls, quote, idols of the heart. For example, in Ezekiel chapter 14. Which is why Jesus, likewise, can use idolatry language to talk about something as common as money. Now, is money always bad? No, Jesus and his disciples had money. They saved money. They used money. And yet, listen to how Jesus uses idolatry language with regard to something like money. He says, you cannot serve both God and money. This is why the Apostle Paul in the New Testament can say, put on or put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is what? Idolatry. Even something as commonplace as covetousness which is kind of a big fancy Ten Commandments word that refers to longings for something that God hasn't given you. Perhaps something good that God has blessed your neighbor with that you long for and say, God, why haven't you given this to me? Even a sin as simple and as commonplace as longing for something God has given to your neighbor but hasn't given to you, even something as simple as longing for something that somebody else has is idolatry. The New Testament teaches us. See, when our passions get out of order, Paul talks about this in that sentence in Colossians 3 as well. When our passions get out of order and we take even good things and we're too passionate. The problem is not that we were passionate about something that we shouldn't have been passionate about. The problem is that sometimes we advocate for good things in a God kind of way. And we're well on our path toward idolatry. So how do we discover idols in our own lives if idolatry is such a common issue? I want to quote an excellent pastor and theologian named Josh Anderson, who sometimes uses this question to help us discover the hidden idols of our hearts. Consider this question, if you would. What do you put your hope in to deliver to you what you really want? This is an x-ray question that probably helps us discover the idols that live in our hearts. 
What do you put your hope in to deliver to you what you really want? Or to put it another way, if only fill in the blank, then I'd be happy. If only fill in the blank, it would be okay. Sometimes we can see idolatry of the heart very clearly when it's the alcoholic who has taken something which can be a good gift, blessed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet for an alcoholic, that good gift is not being used in good ways. It's that good gift of wine has become a God kind of thing. And the result is a slavish devotion. It says it doesn't matter what anybody else says. It doesn't matter what happens as a result. It doesn't matter what passions come raging out of my heart. I am devoted to this beverage. It's easy to see, easy enough to see the idols of somebody's heart at that point. Sometimes it's a little more challenging to see the idols of our hearts related to money. When we go back to the accounts and we realize they aren't as full as we hoped. Or you look at your retirement and things have taken a dip. And it's not wrong to have savings. In fact, it's probably wise to have savings. And yet, we take that good thing, savings to provide for the future, and we make it a godlike thing in our lives. And it doesn't matter what passions come raging out of our hearts against people around us. It doesn't matter how this pulls our focus and our worship away from the Lord. Why? Because you cannot serve both God and money. Political ideologies. We've seen this a few times in the last few years. I think because we as Christians are called to love our neighbors, we should advocate on behalf of certain things in order to advocate for some of our neighbors in our community. I think there really is a place for Christians to care about and be engaged in political processes. And yet sometimes a good intention of caring for our neighbors by advocating on their behalf, sometimes our political ideologies, those good things become God things. And it doesn't matter what passions come raging out of our hearts. It doesn't matter what destruction happens in our relationships or friendships around us anymore. It doesn't matter how our devotion to studying up on these topics pulls our hearts further and further away from the Lord. Why? Because that good impulse to love and serve our city, our state, our nation, that good impulse has become a God kind of thing in our lives. You see what I'm saying? Clothing and popularity. Physical fitness. Personal health. Success in school. Success in work. Sexual fulfillment. A big happy family just the way you always dreamed. A certain kind of home. These are good gifts. But when we place our hopes outside of Jesus Christ... When we take His good gifts and we make them God kinds of things in our lives, we are well on the way toward idolatry. You see, this matters because just as in Rachel's day, 
All of us grew up absorbing certain idolatries from our culture and from our family of origin. Whether that's an idolatry of money, an idolatry of a certain kind of success, an idolatry of a certain kind of family. We grew up absorbing idolatries from our culture and from our family of origin. Sometimes those idols remain hidden under the surface where other people are not alerted to their presence. Very often, these things are tied to deep longings of our hearts. It's a danger that every one of us faces. And here's why I bring all of this up. Are you tracking with me? Because as we're reading the book of Hosea, and we're reading God's strong statements about the seriousness of the sins of idolatry, This is not just stuff that had to do with people way back when. This is God's word for us today. This is God's word for us today, warning us to take seriously whatever would pull our hearts away from him. And so let me ask you, as we dig into this text... What idols of the heart might be at work in your life? What are you tempted to put your hope in in order to give you what you really want in life? Well, with some sense of that in our minds, let's get back to our text here. How does God get our hearts back from stubborn idolatry? This text gives us a few answers. I'm painting broad brushstrokes here, but two basic answers. Number one, he may use hardship. Hosea chapter 2, speaking in this setting to a whole community of his people who have turned away and sold themselves into other lovers, who have sold themselves to idolatry. This passage begins with a plea. Verse 2, plead with your mother. Sometimes God sends people into our lives to plead with us. And sometimes when he does so, we view those people as just a pain in the neck. But Hosea chapter 2 maybe opens our eyes to realize sometimes those pain in the neck kind of friends who ask us these hard questions who dare to open the hard topics, who plead with us on the Lord's behalf. Perhaps they're part of the Lord's strategy to win our heart back to Him. The passage sounds a little bit like court proceedings. It sounds a little bit like we're sitting in an ancient family court. Plead with your mother, plead with her. There's kind of a case that's set up about her adulterous and even whoring kinds of ways. And then in chapter, and then in chapter 2, verse 6, and in verse 9, and again in verse 14, we see this repeated word, therefore. And in the ancient language, it sounds a little bit like here are the resolutions in light of the complaint that has been filed here in this family court. Let's look at the first therefore in verse 6. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns. 
and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but she shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. Do you hear what's happening? This is a picture of how the Lord will sometimes use hardship in order to do what? Toward what end? For what purpose? To bring us back to him. It's the goal that we talked about in the book of Hosea that we highlighted last week. Even frustrations in our lives. This idea that the way is hedged in front of us. Have you ever felt like that? Like it was all smooth sailing and then stuff just got in my way. Even this kind of frustration of being hedged in is one thing that the Lord sometimes uses in order to win our hearts back from stubborn idolatry. And this passage kind of continues in that vein. Not only will the way sometimes be hedged, but then in verse 9, therefore I will take back its grain in its time. There's this kind of clever picture that builds throughout the first half of Hosea chapter 2, in which it's as if, it's as if the people of Israel as the Lord's wife have turned away in search of provision. The Lord's people think the Lord is nice and loving and everything, but if I want crops, i got to go look elsewhere. The Lord is cool and everything, but if I want economic security, i got to go look elsewhere. The Lord is cool and everything, but if I want sexual fulfillment and a thriving family, I better lean on Baal. And the Lord, in this kind of clever word picture, reveals that in fact, in verse 8, she did not know that it was I who gave her that grain and that wine and that oil all along. She was putting those statues out in the field. The people were putting their statues out in the fields and saying, well, look, we got a harvest. And Yahweh says, yes, you got a harvest because I am long-suffering and patient. And I was the one who provided that harvest. And yet in time, the Lord eventually says, I'm going to begin to withdraw some of that prosperity that you're experiencing. Why? To get their attention. As a wake-up call. To draw them back to Him. You see, sometimes in order to win our hearts back from our stubborn idolatries, the Lord may use hardship. We get a powerful testimony of this um, from C.S. Lewis, who wrote a book and published it during World War II in England. So like we live in a time of political turmoil, a lot of instability. A lot of fear and worry about the outcomes of political ideologies that are flying around. C.S. Lewis was living through all of that dialed up times 10 in England during World War II. Add to it austerity measures, lack of food on the shelves, the threat of airplanes flying overhead and dropping bombs on your village. 
C.S. Lewis is not unaware of the reality of pain. And yet listen to what, listen to what he says in this trying time during World War II. He wrote, we can rest contentedly in our sins and stupidities. <laughs> I like the way he says that. We can rest contentedly in our sins and stupidities, but pain insists upon being attended to. And then this famous line, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. Pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Everyone has noticed how hard it is to turn our thoughts to God when everything is going well with us. We have all we want is a terrible saying when all does not include God. We find God as an interruption. As St. Augustine says somewhere, God wants us to, or God, excuse me, God wants to give us something but cannot. Why? Because our hands are full. There's nowhere for him to put it. Whereas a friend of mine said, C.S. Lewis writes, we regard God as an airman regards his parachute. Is there for emergencies, but he hopes he'll never have to use it. And now God who made us knows what we are and that our happiness lies with him. Yet we will not seek it in him as long as he leaves us any other resort where it can even plausibly be looked for. While what we call our own life remains agreeable, we will not surrender it to him. What then can God do in our interests but make our own life less agreeable to us and take away the pleasurable sources of false happiness? It is just here where God's providence seems at first to be most cruel, that the divine humility, the stooping down of the highest, most deserves praise. What C.S. Lewis is very elegantly saying is that if we are left in comfortable circumstances too long, some of us will happily drift further and further and further away from the Lord without even realizing there's a problem. And so sometimes, not always, but sometimes the Lord will use pain and difficult circumstances to frustrate our path forward further and further into our idolatries sometimes the lord will use pain c.s lewis says like a like a megaphone like a microphone as a way of amplifying his message to us while we're drifting along saying please don't interrupt my quiet little ride down the lazy river now there's a few things we need to say here One of them is that this is not the case with all suffering and pain. The book of Job is in our Bibles to show us that not all pain is precisely because God is out to disrupt our idols. In fact, Job's friends in the book of Job are famous as Job's friends for doing what? For saying, Job, there must be some hidden unrighteousness. There must be some hidden idolatry. That's the explanation for your suffering. Brothers and sisters, let's not be Job's friends. 
Let's not go around with fingers pointed saying, oh, I know why there's hardship in your life. You must have sinned. The book of Job, like other passages of Scripture, warns us against making assumptions so easily, especially for other people. And yet alongside the message of Job, which cautions us against assuming all suffering is like this, is the message of Hosea, which tells us rather directly that this is something God does. He uses suffering strategically to shake the idols in our hearts. And in a time of instability like this, when we are all suffering in various ways, and I love you all, and I know so many of your stories have involved real pain and real hardship and real heartache and real fears and real worries and real disruptions over the last year and a half. All of us are living through it. And I don't want to be one of Job's friends kind of up here in a self-righteous way pointing my finger and saying, I know what the idol is in your life. But I do want to be a faithful messenger opening Hosea chapter 2 and saying to us all, sometimes the Lord uses suffering, instability, pain in our lives very purposefully and very strategically to uproot the idols that maybe we hadn't even noticed. And so in light of Hosea chapter 2, can I ask you, what is it that you are tempted to put your hope in? To deliver to you what you really want in life? What idols of the heart might the Lord be uprooting in this season? You know, C.S. Lewis writing to his friends during World War II did not mean that any one of them individually had caused World War II to happen. I'm not saying that any of us caused COVID to happen. Are you tracking with me? And yet our sovereign God is able to use the hardest seasons of our life for profound good. And I bet you've seen that in the past already, haven't you? Hard, difficult, painful seasons that you walk through and then you get to the other side and you look back and you say, I didn't even fully see it all when I was in the middle of it, but the Lord was at work. Listen, suffering will tend to do one of two things to us. It will make us bitter or it will make us better. And I think that for many of us, one of the things that we need to do to move out of the bitterness lane And into the better lane is to humbly ask this question before the Lord. Would you search my heart? Would you reveal to me the things that need to be uprooted? Maybe these are good things, but we've turned them into God things. How does the Lord get our hearts back from stubborn idolatry. One thing that this passage shows us in a very pointed way is it shows us that he may use hardship, but there's a second thing that this passage beautifully portrays for us in verses 14 through 23. It also shows us that he is the God who woos in the wilderness. Look with me if you would at verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. 
modern translation, I will woo her. I will win her heart. Verse 14, therefore, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Do you see what's going on here? This is a picture of the Lord's heart while he uses pain sometimes to wake us up and to get our attention. We are dead wrong if we walk away with this picture of God as this big ogre-ish monster who's just trying to bludgeon us into obedience to him. We walk away dead wrong if that's our picture of the Lord. He uses pain and suffering strategically to get us out into the wilderness places. But once we're out in the wilderness, what is his intention? To bludgeon us into obedience? No. Even the pathways out into the wilderness, even the rough, dry patches of our lives where it looks like nothing good is growing around us, even those paths are meant to lead His people to a place where He will do what? He will demonstrate His tenderness, His mercies, His kindness, His affection for us that He might woo our hearts back to him having emptied our hands to use that picture that augustine has he intends to fill our hands now with tokens of his love and affection and here in hosea chapter 2 we get this picture of the one who woos in the wilderness And then in verse 16, the imagery is almost the imagery now of a covenant renewal ceremony or a wedding vow renewal ceremony, if you will. Have you ever been to a vow renewal ceremony? It could be profoundly beautiful events. A couple that once stood on a stage like this and held hands and made their vows before God and their beloved. In the sight of God and this company of witnesses, they gather together perhaps 25 years later or 50 years later and they make their vows afresh to one another. Sometimes keenly aware of how costly their vows have already been. How difficult those vows have already been to keep to one another. And here in a way, the Lord kind of sets up a A love renewal ceremony. A relationship renewal ceremony in verse 16. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And then look with me at verse 19. And I will betroth you. Well, let me say just very briefly about 18. There is this covenant renewal, which pictures some of the most Beautiful and splendid promises of the new covenants. A whole renewed creation. In the new heavens and the new earth, no more need for weapons. No more violence. And yet the heart of this new covenant that the Lord is inviting His people into, at the heart of that new covenant is not just a world made new and a world made safe. A home where we finally belong. But it's not just this home where we finally belong. It's Him. 
verse 19. And I will betroth you to me forever. Next sentence. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice. In steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. You see, this isn't just about the world made new. It's about a union between God and His people. Let me take that a step further. I'm not going to retrace all the steps of the logic we talked about last week. But in these last verses, we hear this description. Those who are once called scattered will be planted. Those who are called no mercy, I will show mercy to them. Those And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. These words are picked up by Paul and by Peter in in the New Testament to refer to who? To us. And so here's what I'm saying. As we read about these marriage renewal vows here in Hosea chapter 2, It's not just that the Lord goes through these renewal vows 2,700 years ago. And now we're invited to sit out in the audience and listen in. It's not even that as the Lord makes these marriage renewal vows as a token of His love for His people, it's not even that we get to line up as the bridesmaids and the groomsmen and stand at the back of the stage as those who are invited and get an upfront view. Track with me here. These are the words of the new covenant renewal that God has made with us. In Hosea chapter 2, in a way, he's asking us to reach out our hands and join with his. As he looks in our eyes, knowing full well our unfaithfulness in the past, The idols that have tugged our hearts away from Him over and over again. The unrighteousness, the injustice, the lack of love, the lack of compassion, the lack of faithfulness on our part. And yet through His Word, God is reaching out to join hands with His people today. Saying, I will betroth you to me forever. And what will it be based on? Verse 19, I will betroth you to me in my own righteousness. I will betroth you to me in my own justice. I will betroth you to me in my own steadfast love, in my own compassion. I will betroth you to me on the foundation of my own faithfulness to you, the Lord says. And listen, as those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, our heavenly husband. As those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, those vows, those pledges of righteousness and justice and love and mercy and compassion and faithfulness, they're not just words that he spoke on a stage in fancy clothes. They're words that he proved 
by laying down his own life for us in love. This is a commitment that he has sealed with nothing less than his own blood. And so here in Hosea chapter 2, what we have is not only a challenge for us to recognize the idolatry that sometimes lives in our hearts. We have a beautiful picture of the God who exists, who is righteous, who is just, who is loving, who is compassionate, and who is faithful. And who laid down his own life to reach out and join hands with us to say, I will betroth you to myself forever. And we have this sweet opportunity seeing his astonishing love for unfaithful, whoring people like us. That wasn't polite language in Hosea's day and it's not polite language in our day. It wasn't a flattering picture in his day. It's not a flattering picture in ours. But oh, how it reveals the wonder of the love of our Lord who loved us so much that he says, this is the, this cup is the new covenant which is established by what? By my own blood. My righteousness. My justice. My love. My compassion. My faithfulness which will never fail. This blood establishes the new covenant by my blood. And so I will betroth you to me forevermore. And we have this sweet opportunity to say to him, I do. Will you take this redeemer to be your redeemer? We will. Will you take this God to be your God? can't believe it's true. But because he has offered himself to me on the basis of his righteousness, his justice, his love, his compassion, his faithfulness,